bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the Tuesday, August 31st, 2021 podcast. Solar is the fastest growing source of electricity in the United States. The U.S. Energy Department reports that solar generation grew from 2.5 gigawatts in 2010 to more than 100 gigawatts today. That's a whopping 40-fold increase. That said, solar only accounts for about 3% of the country's annual energy generation. Now, the Biden administration has a goal to achieve a carbon pollution-free power sector by the year 2035. To reach this goal, the U.S. will need to deploy solar power at a significantly higher rate a rate of three to four times higher. And if that is achieved, though, then solar can grow from the 3% of energy generation that I mentioned to more than 40% by 2035. A major driver, or perhaps the major driver for generating more solar energy is, and will continue to need to be, renewable energy tax credits. Now, the major investors in renewable energy tax credits have historically been, and continue to be, institutional corporate investors. Individual investors are not very common. That said, we at Novogratik are increasingly hearing from individual investors who are interested in investing equity in solar energy developments, hence today's podcast. Unfortunately, there are a number of tax obstacles that lead to the reasons why we don't see many individual investors. But for individuals who can navigate the tax obstacles, there are many benefits to investing in solar energy, including the big three of cash flow, tax losses, and of course, tax credits. So joining me in today's discussion is my partner, Nat Ng, from Novogratz Walnut Creek, California office. Nat specializes in renewable energy tax credits and has helped many individual investors assess and overcome the hurdles in the tax code so that they can reap the benefits of investing in solar energy tax credits. And we're going to start off today's discussion with some of the key economic benefits of investing in solar tax credits, as I noted, cash flow, tax losses, and tax credits. After that, we'll spend the majority of the podcast reviewing why individual investors in solar are uncommon. And for that part of the discussion, we're going to dive into specific tax issues that do create hurdles for individuals. Now, to clarify, we're not going to cover all the tax issues in this podcast. There are several tax as well as non-tax issues that individual investors will have to keep in mind before investing in solar. But we are going to keep today's podcast discussion focused on a few of the major tax hurdles. And then if we have time... Uh, in this podcast, and if not in this podcast, we'll have a follow-up podcast. I'm going to ask Nat to share some case studies as to how he's been able to help clients overcome some of these tax hurdles. If you're ready, let's get started. So, Nat, thank you for joining me in the podcast today. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be on. Now, as I noted in the intro, individual tax credit equity investors have been a bit of a rarity in the renewable energy industry, but that does appear to be changing. So maybe you could share with our listeners what's attracting individuals to the renewable energy tax credit industry these days. Yeah, I think uh, we used to equate uh, individuals with unicorns, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, unicorns uh, definitely imply rarity. <laughs> Although maybe there's a, a, a population explosion in unicorns, <laughs> that being said. Um, so, yeah, anyways, sorry for uh, using the unicorn analogy once again, but um, I think there's a number of reasons why uh, individuals are uh, entering into the market uh, now more than ever. And it, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think a lot of times uh, when I first speak to an individual investor, they basically lead off with the fact that they're 
you know, very uh, environmentally and socially minded. And um, for that reason, I think that's usually what's attracting them first and foremost to the solar industry. Uh, outside of that, however, <laughs> there's a lot of other factors that I, I think are making it compelling for uh, individual investors for multiple reasons. Um, I, I think back when uh, in 2017, when there was the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, it was sort of viewed by uh, a lot of individuals as a little bit of a misnomer <laughs> because a lot of folks sort of saw their, their taxes increase. Meanwhile, the corporate tax rate uh, decreased. <laughs> and what was what's interesting is the corporate institutional investors, mostly widely held C-Corps, which we'll get into later, were you know the predominant and continue to be the dominant investors uh, in the market. But when the corporate tax rate fell, individual tax rates increased. I, I think uh, it definitely gave individual investors more motivation to, you know, perhaps pursue uh, solar transactions because of the the bump in in return or ROI effectively. Um, so that was, you know, one of the drivers. And then I, I think, you know, despite the ongoing pandemic, there's a lot of folks that have been uh, successful and uh, are generating taxable income these days. And I, I think there's also prospects of an increase in the capital gains rate that's motivating a lot of investors to, you know, perhaps take their gain now and offset it with solar tax credits, if, if at all possible. So I, I think those are the, the main reasons why we're seeing, you know, an explosion in the uh, individual investors that are uh, entering in the market. And it's, it's definitely good to see. But I think you make a good observation on the difference in tax rates when, you know, individuals sort of pre-Tax Cut and Jobs Act were at 39.6% sort of top rate versus corporations at 35%, you know, not as much of a spread versus, you know, post-TCGA where the individuals are top 37% and the corporations 21%, that ends up being a pretty uh, notable spread in terms of the difference in the benefit from the tax losses. So that's a good point. So what yeah, are- Definitely level the playing field a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> so then speaking of economics, uh, maybe you could describe what individual investors are looking for uh, kind of at a high level in terms of returns, as well as what the market sort of offers. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's interesting in terms of what we're seeing out there. <laughs> and a lot of times it, it could even depend on um, the individual investor and their personality and their motivations. Some, a lot of investors out there are, are sort of looking at it and saying, well, I'd rather invest in a solar system than pay Uncle Sam for better or for worse. And, you know, to the extent that their returns, you know, are realized in the first year, uh, usually against their tax liability, it's, you know, it's a very good economic proposition to these investors. We have to remember that the solar ITC is front loaded. <laughs> There's potentially bonus depreciation available as well. So the return profiles on a lot of the investments out there 
comes back in the first year such that the investor might have, you know, potentially a, a, a cumulative positive cumulative after tax return in year one, which is sort of a, you know, a different investment profile versus a lot of other things or options out there, you know, including other tax credit investments for that matter. Maybe you could talk about the three kind of major benefits more specifically in terms of cash flow, general sort of expectations on the cash flow side, the general expectations in terms of tax losses relative to equity invested, as well as amount of tax credits per equity invested. And I realize there's a wide range. And <laughs> so you can give kind of, or maybe just a proportion, but just a sense of dollar magnitude. If I have a, if I'm investing $100, say, how much of that benefit do I think is coming from the cash flow versus the tax losses versus the tax credits? Yeah, it can really vary deal to deal. And then also it depends on the, the time horizon that an investor is, is, is looking at it. Some you know, want to monetize tax credits and be on their merry way, while others are actually looking at these, uh, these investments as long-term investments. What's interesting is, is there's uh, um, sort of a well-developed solar securitization and bond market um, that has matured. And in a lot of ways, um, having an equity investment uh, in a solar system can mirror, mirror that in a lot of ways. Speaking of the range, there can be minimal cash flows, enough to justify economic substance to um, looking at it as a long-term cash flow annuity uh, where uh, an investor is monetizing, you know, sometimes all of the power purchase agreement revenues, net of expenses throughout the useful life of the solar system. So it, it can really be on opposite sides of the spectrum, uh, depending on, you know, the investor's preferences. Um, going into tax benefits and credits, uh, again, there's <laughs> definitely a, a wide latitude of uh, how folks are monetizing. Uh, things. From a depreciation standpoint, I, I think a lot of folks are looking to front load depreciation to the extent possible. There are, of course, limitations on that, which we'll go into. Um, tax credits, um, again, it depends on the type of investment that the investor is looking for. Some investors, depending on the, the product, might be buying credits sometimes on a discount, which you know can, you right. know, basically result in a lot of instant gratification <laughs> given that the credits up front so whereas you know more of the longer term investors you know will invest more money up front for delayed gratification so to speak that's a good uh, overview thank you for that i mean it is a unique investment as you kind of point out because you you know, could be investing for significant cash flow. And it's somewhat unique relative to none of the other tax credits that we work with, where you don't expect there to be much in the way of a, a sort of long-term cash flow. And obviously when you're dealing with individuals and maybe smaller size installations and the like, there can be a lot of customization as to which of the benefits go to which the parties, the developer, the individual investor, or maybe a, you know, a cash flow investor and the like. So maybe we should, let's jump into the uh, some of the limits. <laughs> Uh, in my introduction, I noted that individual investors in solar tax credits, one of the reasons why they're not as common are the various tax hurdles or impediments that exist. When I think of the tax hurdles or impediments, I think of three major ones. I'm not sure if I'll call them the big three or not, 
maybe it's the uh, big one in the minor two or something, but uh, the most significant I always think of is the passive activity rules, of course, which go back to the 86 Tax Reform Act. Uh, and I'll have you talk about that. But there, the second two that I think about are the, the next two I think about are the at-risk rules, you know, which you know, kind of go back to 1984. Uh, and then there's also uh, Section 461L, uh, which is the limitation on excess business losses, uh, which came in with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. So maybe we can talk about each of these three hurdles or impediments, starting with the passive activity rule. Now, uh, rather than dive right into solar, maybe you could first, for our benefit of our listeners, maybe at a level set, describe generally what the passive activity rule is and what it's designed to accomplish, why Congress enacted it back in 1986. Yeah, I, I can give a little bit of history, um, but I, I think it's also important to take a step back as, as well. For some of the audience, uh, a lot of them are experienced with dealing with, you know, the traditional large bank or insurance company as a tax equity investor. Now, these large institutions, which are widely held C-Corps, have been, you know, involved for a number of years in the industry. And it's on a relative basis easy for those types of entities relative to individuals. So what Mike just sort of walked everyone through here is that to sort of cut down to it is individuals have um, hurdles, so to speak, or other tax considerations beyond what a typical widely held C-Corp needs to think about. And just to sort of make it clear, I didn't do a good enough job kind of walking into this is widely held corporations aren't subject to these limits. These are additional limits for individuals. And that's hence uh, why, you know, sort of we haven't seen as many individuals, but uh, please continue. Yeah, yeah. Some would argue that the tax code is a little bit uh, discriminatory in that regard against individuals. <laughs> yes, they are trying to disincentivize everyone's grandparents from investing in this. And <laughs> let's, let's dig into that a little bit. <laughs> So um, with respect to the, the passive activity rules, I, 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 I sort of look at it from the standpoint of the fact that individuals usually have three buckets of income. There's active income. Think, you know, everyone's day job, if they have a day job, <laughs> um, portfolio income, uh, that might be your, your, your stock trading account. <laughs> could be your cryptocurrency account in this day and age. And then the third bucket is um, the passive bucket. And the concept with these distinct buckets of income and losses is that the tax code is trying to uh, effectively discourage uh, mixing or commingling the buckets. So from that standpoint, if someone has uh, an active income, but they're passively involved in, let's say, a solar investment, unfortunately, what that means is, is that the credits from the solar investment and the losses are passive in nature and therefore cannot offset their active income or their you know, wages from their day job, for example. So this is why, um, you know, why a lot of uh, individual investors are sort of discouraged sort of right off the bat from investing in solar, even though there's, you know, all these other reasons why they should. So maybe you can uh, 
discuss more specifically how the pest activity rule does limit uh, individuals and their ability to participate in solar transactions. And, you know, thinking, you know, the, as you mentioned, there's a three buckets active, and that's basically a real estate trader business that you materially participate in as a general rule. There's the portfolio, which is interest in dividends and the like. And then there's this passive bucket and the passive bucket being a trader business, which you don't materially participate in or a rental real estate activity uh, as a, I should say a rental activity as a general matter. There's subset rules, which we're not going to go into here. <laughs> this isn't a podcast on the passive activity rules, but we have these sort of three uh, buckets. And, you know, with respect to solar, uh, it seems that solar is either going to be uh, a passive activity for an investor or an active activity. Maybe you could build and explain a little bit more how that works for the listeners. Yeah, yeah. You know, despite, I think, saying it's sort of a go or no-go decision, I, I think there's definitely um, a variety of ways that uh, individuals can work through, of course, with their advisors, uh, work through the passive activity limitations and, um, you know, potentially uh, participate in, in solar. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the, the easiest scenario that I've run into out there um, is those situations where someone has um, passive income sources and passive income sources, you know, can include rental real estate, it can, you know, also include, you know, other interests and in trades or businesses where an investor doesn't spend, I guess, a significant amount of time. And the, the great thing about passive income is you can invest in solar passively um, and then use those passive credits to uh, offset the passive income in a clean and straightforward manner. Um, you, these, these, these types of passive income investors also have a lot of flexibility as well because they can participate in things like LP interests, i.e. traditional tax equity transactions where the LP interest is per se passive anyway. So the passive income and the, the passive credits and losses sort of function like peas and carrots, so to speak, <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, offsetting things, you know, rather nicely. <laughs> now, right. for everyone else that <laughs> doesn't have enough passive income, um, we, you know, it, it requires a, a little bit more, I guess, finesse in some cases, uh, optimization to work around or take into consideration these these passive activity rules. So we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later, but is it, is it safe to say that your investment, if you're an invest, individual investor uh, in a solar transaction, that your credits and losses are either passive credits or passive losses, such that they can only offset you know, passive uh, income or taxes on passive income, or your investment in the solar transaction is an active uh, activity such that those tax credits are active and the losses are active such that they can offset income or taxes from any of the three buckets. Yeah, that, that's an important point. So for those folks that do not have you know, sufficient passive income to uh, efficiently monetize tax credits and losses from a passive solar investment, um, there's definitely a number of ways that um, an individual can um, classify or, or 
treat their investment in solar as a as an an active um, activity. Okay. And yeah, you know, well, we'll, let's, we can get to that in a bit. Okay. <laughs> we can leave that right now. The the populist can go. Okay, wait, wait, wait! Don't interrupt that. It's like <laughs> let's talk about at risk rules. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we can go into at risk. So we'll go into. Uh, we have some examples that we'll kind of walk through. But uh, uh, let's now go to the at risk rules. When I think about the passive activity rules, I think about those that are basically Congress created them uh, to ensure that, you know, active in, that you pay tax on active income and uh, portfolio income, and that you have this separate sort of passive bucket that doesn't kind of, and it's just a way of ensuring, you know, these, you have these different buckets from a tax collection perspective. Uh, we get to the at-risk rules, uh, and the at-risk rules are you know designed by Congress to basically say you shouldn't be able to deduct losses that you're not at risk for. You don't have an economic risk for them. And that's a great simplification. That's the o- overarching point of at-risk rules. And there's a whole host of uh, exam- of ways in which you determine if taxpayers are at risk or deemed to be at risk. So maybe you could share the impact of those at-risk rules on investing in solar. Yeah, I, I think um, you know once an investor usually thinks through the passive activity rules, they then run into the, I guess, the second hurdle or second wall that they have right. to climb over, which is these at-risk rules for for better or for worse. And um, uh, the at-risk rules um, basically high level want to make sure that investors have you know real skin or economic risk in the transaction. Now, I, I think one important distinction here is that solar is tangible personal property, whereas um, real estate is real property. And that's an important distinction from an at-risk standpoint, because a lot of times solar and real estate is financed with non-recourse debt. And non-recourse debt for real property gives at-risk basis. Uh, The real estate industry was very smart (laughs) to get that provision in the tax code. (laughs) Solar, on the other hand, non-recourse debt does not give (laughs) at-risk basis. And what that means is potentially with a non-recourse finance solar system, an individual may have at-risk suspensions of the losses. So all the depreciation that they thought they could monetize, (laughs) unfortunately, gets sort of stuck in a suspended loss sort of piggy bank to offset future years of income. So the the instant gratification because of the at-risk rules might not be there. So that's, you know, one of the items that we're running into. There's also a lot of there's also rules around what constitutes qualified non-recourse debt that individuals should be careful of. Uh, a lot of times I'm working with a solar developer, for example, and they say, well, I'm just going to you know, provide some vendor financing to <laughs> my customer who happens to be an individual. And why that's an issue is, is the solar developer or EPC provider is not a commercial lending entity. <laughs> so their debt is not qualified non-recourse debt. And what does that mean? It actually means that the tax credit (laughs) can get haircut on the deal to the extent that there's this non-qualified non-recourse financing. So it's something to be, you know, very uh, cognizant of if they're, you know, if there's a a non-traditional financing uh, mechanism involved. Now there's ways to structure the debt around that through a guarantee and making the non-recourse debt recourse. 
Um, there's also things like the level payment loan exception um, that sometimes folks use to, to, to work around this rule. Um, but it, it's, it's definitely an item to keep on everyone's radar when a, an individual investor is involved in a solar deal. Um, outside of those two hurdles within a hurdle, I guess, um, <laughs> there's um, also one other uh, item that I uh, want to point out, and it's, it's kind of buried in the old at-risk guidance that gets scoped in. <laughs> and that's having to do with leasing transactions. We've definitely tried to do a lot of lease pass-through transactions with individuals involved. Uh, and unfortunately, despite lots of trying, I, I'm not exactly sure if I've been successful in, <laughs> in structuring one or actually have you know work with a client on one that closed. And it, it's because there's this minimum credit ratio that's driven by the amount of lease payments that have to be guaranteed <laughs> um, by the lessee. <laughs> and quite frankly, when guarantees come up, especially depending on the individual, <laughs> it, it you know a lot of times is not met with open arms to say the least. And um, uh, I think with a lease pass-through structure, what always comes up is, well, why am I guaranteeing the developer here <laughs> effectively? So anyways, I, I, I think there, there's the at-risk rules do pose some structural limitations on what can be done uh, in the context of individual investors. Well, thank you for that. And I'll just sort of maybe leave it with, we have these at-risk rules. They need to be navigated. <laughs> uh, there are qualified non-recourse financing rules. Be careful with uh, who, who's providing the non-recourse financing. And, and then there's a minimum credit ratio issue around lease pass-through transactions. And then with that, uh, let's go to the third impediment that I mentioned in the intro. And that's the, you know, somewhat, I guess it's not that new, but it still feels new. And that's Internal Revenue Code Section 461L, which limits uh, the ability to deduct excess business losses. You know, so it limits individuals' ability to deduct certain business losses of which you're trying to make, you know, solar losses, you know, these uh, business losses that you can claim against other income. So maybe that you could describe what the limitation is uh, and then talk about how it's limiting uh, or how it have to be navigated for solar investments? Yeah, admittedly, it wasn't on my radar until relatively recently when uh, folks started bringing it up. Um, now, just, you know, just quick history. Um, um, this business loss limitation was actually in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Um, however, um, you know, due to the pandemic and the CARES Act, uh, the can has been sort of kicked down the road, so to speak, <laughs> until 2021. And and guess what year we're in right now? <laughs> 2021. So it, it's basically, it doesn't seem like the can can be kicked down the road uh, any longer, unless for some reason there's something that happens legislatively that um, at least I'm not aware of. Um, so um, with the business loss limitation, it's, I don't know, I, I think this is probably, you know, one of the more controversial <laughs> hurdles, I'll call it, that individuals have to deal with. And, and basically, um, what it's trying to prevent is for individuals from taking business losses 
and offsetting other types of income. <laughs> what are those other types of income? <laughs> there, there's a little bit of debate there and there's a little bit of uh, navigating the gray with everything. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's defined as basically uh, employment income and portfolio income. So the thought process is trade or business losses can offset trade or business income, but potentially not offset somebody's W-2 wages, for example. Um, and maybe, you know, just a, kind of, maybe just in thinking about the passive roles, the passive roles, we had active income uh, and losses. We had portfolio income or losses, interest in dividends, active income or losses, which would be uh, you know, salaries as long with uh, trade or business income. And then you have this passive income, which is basically, you know, trader business income that you don't materially participate in. You're not really active in it and rental uh, income as a general rule. So you have those sort of three buckets. And then this 461L is sort of taking that active bucket, that active trader business bucket and saying that, and maybe in your passive bucket and saying, there's almost like a sub bucket <laughs> that if you have these, these losses that you're generating. Um, you can't offset wage income and you can't offset uh, portfolio income beyond a dollar threshold, which is 500000 for a married couple. Is that a reasonable summary or if you want to build out that summary? <laughs> I, I like that summary. Um, yeah, 461L is definitely uh, taking some of the, the pre-existing limitations on individuals and sort of taking it one step further to reiterate Mike's point. And yeah, Mike, Mike is correct. There, there is a $500,000 um, loss limitation that, you know, married filing jointly individual taxpayers, you know, need to contend with potentially. And uh, it's interesting because I, I think there's a lot of debate on what may or can constitute <laughs> trader business income versus trader business losses for that matter. And, you know, we're proactively working with a variety of practitioners across the space with their individual investors trying to navigate these rules right now as uh, individual investors are, you know, actively pursuing deals. So it's definitely, you know, a, a hot topic right now that <laughs> everyone should be aware of. And, and the key being that if you can't use, you're basically capped on 500000 of the losses against your, you know, wage income and or portfolio income. Um, um, and beyond that, if you can't, if you have more than that, then you carry it forward. So it's more of a time value of money question. You know, if you can't get as many, you can't claim as much of the losses in a given year, you have to delay claiming them. Then that, you know, reduces the value uh, of the investment slightly. So it's just a price. Ultimately, it's a pricing question. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a pricing question. But when, you know, one of the primary motivations is instant gratification. You can no, no, I'm not, saying it's, not, I'm not saying, it's, it's not, <laughs> saying it's just a pricing question. I know that all developers are saying it's easy for you to say it's just a pricing question because it's a matter of equity I'm going to have to close my transaction, get my transaction financially feasible. So I'm not trying to minimize it by saying that. but. Uh, I just wanted to make it clear that it's not as if the losses go away. <laughs> right, right. From an uh, <laughs> aggregate uh, ROI perspective, the investor should end up in the same place at the end of the day. Right. But the, val the upfront value proposition might not be as great. And, right. and that, you know, quite frankly, is a, a, a strong factor in the minds of these uh, individual investors. And, and one point to note, it limits the losses, but not the tax credits, thankfully. <laughs> so that's something to keep in mind. There's other 
um, limitations on the tax credits itself that <laughs> right. maybe we can go into uh, at a later point. Yeah, maybe another maybe another podcast to go beyond the big three tax issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of items in there. <laughs> yes, and we're not even talking about the non-tax issues. Uh, but uh, so let's uh, jump into the case studies. We've had a good overview, a good discussion of the three main tax impediments. Uh, that individual investors face with solar and it's it's possible to overcome them or else we wouldn't be having this podcast. <laughs> we would just say, don't listen. So you've worked with a number of clients, uh, individual investor clients to help them address the issues so they could go forward and invest in solar transactions. Uh, and in preparing for the podcast, we discussed a number of situations. So maybe we'll start with the passive income investor. And maybe you could, we, we touched upon it earlier, but you're the individual investor that has passive income. You know, is it, you know, how easy is it for that investor to then say, okay, I can be, I can invest in solar? Um, it's definitely uh, very easy. This passive income investors are, are sort of like the easy button, so to speak, <laughs> of, you know, all the scenarios that we might discuss. I think it, a, lo a lot of folks that are looking to invest in solar are looking to outsource initially a lot of the activities uh, of running the trader business or running the solar activity. Um, so the fact that they were planning to be passively involved in the first place, you know, works well um, when they have passive income. So we see passive income investors sometimes own solar projects outright. <laughs> Sometimes we see them participate in tax equity transactions in a very similar manner to uh, institutional investors. So quite frankly, uh, having passive income uh, is a great thing <laughs> in a lot of ways uh, from a, a tax credit monetization right. standpoint. It's, it's not just about <laughs> you know collecting a check. I, I think it's, it also, from a, a, a tax standpoint, you know, I think is very makes things very flexible for the, the investor to, uh, you know, put it shortly. I mean, I would observe that, you know, back in the 86, back when, it, when the passive activity rules were created back in 1986, there was a lot of discussion about creating passive income investors and all the rest. There's a set of regs that were developed to sort of limit the ability to do that. And you never really saw very many investors that had a lot of passive uh, income uh, in part because, you know, the, when I, when you think of the passive activity rules and one of the real drivers was, you know, you have rental real estate, rental real estate was generating passive losses. And most rental real estate historically would generate passive uh, losses, you know, in spite of the fact that the activity itself is generating income because of the, you know, the leverage ratios and all the rest. Well, the interesting thing about the full expensing 100% expensing of personal property land improvements is now a large number of investors in real estate will get these big deductions up front from these big passive activity deductions up front. And if they happen to sell some assets they've held for a while that generate large amounts of passive income, those losses can help sort of offset that those gains. But then they find that once they've taken they fully expense personal property and land improvements on this real estate investment going forward, they start having passive income. So we are seeing more, you know, real estate investors, long-term real estate investors that are now becoming these passive income generators. So I, we're definitely coming across more of those types of uh, investors. But let's turn, since we're talking about real estate for the moment, we do have at Novogratic, obviously, a large number of low-income housing developers or just other uh, developers or business owners. 
that are looking to own solar on their rental real estate properties or uh, you know within their own business activities. So maybe you can discuss you know if you're that if you're that uh, taxpayer or that potential investor uh, how they could be an investor themselves in those solar tax credits and losses. Yeah. So um, under the passive activity rules, despite being a, a hurdle in itself. There are uh, there is a, a, a grouping provision in the passive activity rules that allows taxpayers, in some cases, light tech developers or you know even a business owner who let's say you know wants to own a solar system on their 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 business. Um, let's say they own a supermarket and they want a solar system on top <laughs> to you know offset their electrical usage. These grouping rules are are good from that standpoint in that it allows a taxpayer to make a grouping election when appropriate, of course, which requires you know judgment and <laughs> probably consultation with advisors, <laughs> of course, but allows them to group um, their activities together. And what this allows is a, let's say, a LIHTC developer to group their solar activities in the in situations where the solar systems are servicing their real estate. And it, it's sort of a clean offset or netting of activities. Right. But it has to you know, meet certain criteria like... The fact that um, it's serving the same customers, for example, located in the same geographies, like your building and the solar system are located in the same place, <laughs> which happens most of the time. <laughs> right. But every now and then, you know, we, we have some interesting fact patterns in the renewable space where we have, you know, virtually net metered <laughs> systems right. now, which, you know, make the fact pattern a little bit gray. But I, I think a LIHTC developer that is investing in solar uh, on their own properties has a good fact pattern. <laughs> I guess I want to. Right, I was just going to say that I think when you're thinking of the LIHTC developer, um, for those that aren't as sort of familiar with the rental real estate rules, you could think of a real estate developer that uh, generally rental real estate is passive, but there's an exception uh, for a quote real estate professional. And then there's also an aggregation election. So that so the real estate developer isn't sort of per se passive with their rental real estate losses as long as they aggregate all their activities. And then the question becomes if they then uh, invest in solar, that solar has to be part of those activities in order to, as a general rule, meet the material participation requirement. So there's the notion that you know they can incorporate those solar activities into the rental real estate activities. And then there's also the notion of if I'm just if I'm a business owner and I've got this active business going on, then I similarly, you know, I have to navigate the rules to ensure that the solar activity is part of the other general business activity to be able to get over the material participation rules. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say on that before we jump into solar industry uh, professionals. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Okay. <laughs> um, I, I like to consider myself a solar industry professional. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe you can discuss if you're uh, active in the solar industry, uh, how you might be able to uh, invest in solar and satisfy the material participation requirements such that it's an active credit or an active loss and an active loss. 
Yeah, solar industry professional has a, a very wide uh, definition. It can range from, you know, somebody that engineers inverters, for example, in solar systems or battery storage devices. It could range to folks that, you know, just specialize in construction. There's also, you know, a lot of folks that are developers that build, own, and develop. <laughs> I think the developers probably have the, the best fact pattern, um, to be honest. And then there's other uh, professionals such as myself and Mike, <laughs> who are accountants or professional advisors. Unfortunately for us, <laughs> us accountants, you know, together with, you know, the lawyers are, you know, probably providing personal services. So the, the reason why, um, this is, you know, important to think about is just because you're a solar industry professional doesn't necessarily automatically mean that from a tax filing position, you can invest in solar and offset your, your, your money that you earn from your solar industry profession. And it, it sort of goes back to the fact of this grouping election that we discussed uh, with the, in the prior example, um, and whether or not uh, depending on how you participate in the industry, whether or not those activities can be grouped um, effectively um, right. with uh, with solar tax credits and tax losses from a solar activity. So let's go into the the one that I you know comes up probably a little more frequently, and that is the entrepreneur investor who just had a large gain from the sale of a trader business. And let's assume for the moment that that gain isn't a passive gain. We've talked about if it's a passive gain, then the losses will be passive. And that's example one. We talked the first example we talked about a passive income investor. So let's talk about the entrepreneur investor who has a large gain from a trader business, such that it is a uh, active gain. It's not a passive gain. And okay. what are some of the options for that uh, type of? Uh, investor. Yeah, I'll, I'll note that when uh, taxpayer um, exits an activity, um, it even if it was a passive activity, um, it would uh, shift to uh, active. There's a specific pro provision in the passive activity rule. So I, I think I like Mike's example <laughs> as it's actually on point with the the tax guidance. So I, I think the the entrepreneur or investor, a lot of times their trader business is unrelated to the solar industry, <laughs> or at least that's what I'm running into uh, nine times out of 10. Um, so that entrepreneur or investor will need to figure out how to materially or significantly participate in the solar activity. Um, now that might mean they or and or their spouse uh, spends 500 hours in the solar activity, um, managing and operating uh, the trader business. Um, I'll note that uh, uh, investor hours, which is loosely defined, doesn't count. <laughs> so be careful. That's a very important point. That's a very important point. <laughs> be careful with telling the IRS how, how, how much time you spent reviewing the financial statements <laughs> because that's how they defined investor hours. Also, um, there, there, there was a case where someone's admitted to uh, engaging in recreational activities while visiting their solar systems. <laughs> it's probably not the, the best back pattern. So, um, you know, 
spending time is is definitely uh, essential to being uh, deemed an active participant in solar to offset active income. I would just try to leave it with you got to make sure that you document the hours and the hours have to be real business operating hours, not, you know, the types of activities you would engage in as an investor. And there's no there's examples of what's as, you, as Net noted, there are examples of what are considered investor-related activities versus you know those activities that would count for purposes of the 500-hour test. And there is a there's a technically seven different material participation rules and all the rest that we can't go into here. <laughs> uh, but I would generally think of it as one or the other. Have to spend 500 hours uh, in the active trader business uh, of the activity and have good, strong documentation. And, and obviously, you don't want 500 in one hours. <laughs> you need to have, you know, you want to be well past the 500 hour. That's the minimum, unless you're using one of the other tests. Let's yeah, actually, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Mike. I just wanted to mention that there's uh, maybe perhaps a slightly uh, less onerous 100-hour rule, but the 100-hour rule is contingent that the taxpayer works more than anyone else, quote-unquote, <laughs> on that activity. So an outright ownership of a solar system that that can be workable. Just be careful not to outsource everything because, again, you have to spend hours (laughs) on the business. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's a fax of service. So definitely consult with your individual tax advisor on the various participation standards and uh, just be uh, conservative in terms of your interpretations. And maybe we we'll just talk about the fifth one, which really takes us back to the 86 Tax Reform Act, which which what led to the passivity rules. And that was the sort of classic situation where dentists and lawyers were investing in uh, tax shelters and claiming those losses against their income from practicing as a lawyer or practicing as a dentist. And I shouldn't pick on dentists and lawyers, uh, doctors and accountants and architects and others <laughs> were doing the same thing. Uh, and, you know, executives at major corporations and the like. And that's what led to the uh, passive activity rules. Uh, and what do you, what, any thoughts for the, you know, the dentists or lawyers or others? Yeah, I, I think the, um, you know, best and safest route to go is usually under the 500 or 100 hour rules that uh, we mentioned. The, the problem is, is that those are scoped into, uh, uh, well, I'm not sure about the dentist, but definitely the lawyers, unfortunately, sorry, sorry, attorney friends. Uh, are scoped in as personal services and personal services are, is distinct from, I, I think, <laughs> distinct from the sale of solar power <laughs> enough that I think uh, the 500 or 100 hour rule, you know, might be a, a more conservative route to uh, being uh, an active participant. So thank you for that, uh, Nat. And maybe just to recap uh, our discussion so far, we've talked about the benefits of investing in solar and why there's an increased interest among uh, individuals. We've talked about three common uh, tax hurdles, maybe the three most significant tax hurdles for individual investors. And you've also discussed some of the types of 
situations that, that we're sort of facing and some of the ways to overcome those challenges or recognizing they can't be overcome. But Matt, for our listeners who are who have heard the podcast, uh, and certainly we haven't discussed anything in the podcast sufficient for someone to make any investments. They have to do a lot more work. Hopefully we've helped uh, enlighten them a bit in terms of some of the major issues and situations that they might face. Uh, what would you say the next steps are for any listeners here who are looking at this and trying to assess whether or not they could be investing in solar. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, definitely a listen to this podcast hopefully is, is helpful, but I, I think, um, you know, just getting uh, educated on the industries, you know, very important. There's a lot of business considerations that we didn't discuss that go into uh, investing in these, these solar investments. So uh, there's a number of resources out there and, you know, uh, Novogratic professionals are always happy to help enlighten, you know, any folks that are interested. So now I want you to share your email address. So those that uh, want to reach out directly to you, they sure. can uh, send you an email. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to shoot me an email or reach out to me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, but my email is uh, nat, N-A-T dot ang, E-N-G at novocode.com. And you can find me on the website too. I'm on the second page. <laughs> and if you do uh, email Nat, Email him that you listen to the podcast because <laughs> if you haven't listened to the podcast and you email him, he's going to say, please listen to the podcast first. <laughs> yeah, that would be much, much appreciated. I, I think I've had a, a lot of these conversations and um, I, you know, to be honest, I learned something new every time, but hopefully this podcast will, is beneficial in helping everyone get up to speed. And at least accelerate the conversation. So when you start the conversation, uh, there's a, you don't have to do as much of the preparatory work. So, Nat, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate you sharing your insights about this uh, very important and timely topic. Uh, and as I just noted to our listeners, I encourage you to contact Nat for more information on tax considerations when investing solar tax credits. Uh, as you can tell, Nat has a wealth of experience helping clients work through the issues that we discussed today. We delved into some deep areas a lot of times, and there's a lot of times where you know we use language that did require a bit of prior experience. So, you know, wherever your experience is, you know, please reach out to us. We'd be happy to help. Please uh, be sure to tune in to next week's podcast. Next week's Tax Red Tuesday. I'm going to have my partner, Tom Bosha on the podcast, and he's going to discuss the state of the historic tax credit equity market. And more significantly, how historic tax credit developers can increase the equity, the investor equity they receive associated with their historic tax credits. We'll talk about ways to make an historic tax credit development more financially feasible as well. And I will just note that during our discussion, we'll explain why maximizing historic tax credit equity isn't as simple as just trying to receive the highest price per credit dollar. We have lots of talk about price per credit dollar, and the same thing applies with solar, <laughs> uh, that highest price per credit dollar isn't necessarily translate into the most tax credit equity. Uh, so if you're working with historic tax credits or, or interested in entering the space, you are not going to miss next week's episode. And as I say every week, you can make sure that you're notified as soon as an episode of Tax Credit Tuesday is available by following or subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. You can go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to subscribe to or to stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and Radio Public. So now we're in our off mic section where listeners get to know a bit more about our guests 
unrelated, at least directly, to tax credits. Uh, so, Nat, I appreciate you uh, joining me for this part of the podcast. So, let me uh, start with uh, something that I always uh, like to ask, and that is, what part of your daily routine do you most look forward to and why? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize we had this part until last minute, but uh, <laughs> you're going to get some uncensored responses here. <laughs> Which is what I want. That's my design. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, the most integral part of my daily routine is probably that first cup of black coffee that <laughs> helps clear all the brain fog <laughs> from from the day before. Um, definitely, uh, that's that's a, a ritual that I, I have to do no matter what. <laughs> well, very good, and it's like, and it's accountant black coffee, no sugar yep. or no sugar, just just straight. <laughs> And is there a type of coffee that you prefer? No, as long as it's black. It's good to make. <laughs> I'm a I'm a quantity over quality type of guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So then going to the next question, give me a talent or hobby that few people know you have. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things that partner. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of things that people don't want to know. <laughs> but that being said, um, I guess uh, one hobby that I have is I, I like to mechanically tinker despite being an accountant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe if there's a zombie apocalypse, um, you know, a little bit more useful in that scenario. Um, <laughs> I've been eyeing uh, vintage trailers on Craigslist. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's going to require 100% commitment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have these dreams of like refurbishing an Airstream, for example. I see. The wife already said no. So if I do go through with it, I better commit to it because I'm probably living it at, on, on my driveway <laughs> on my, <laughs> after I get kicked out of the house. Is there a project that you've done recently? Uh, it, uh, yesterday, the house fan died and I tried rebuilding it and unfortunately failed. So <laughs> given that the, the, the heat waves upon us, <laughs> I, I actually have to run out after this to uh, <laughs> go get a new motor. <laughs> Got it. But I tried. <laughs> so my uh, third and final question, aside from tax accounting consulting issues, uh, if you could host a podcast on any topic, what would that be? As long as it doesn't need to be scientifically realistic, <laughs> I have an idea. Um, I, I think uh, I think uh, they just figured or proved out <laughs> Einstein's theory that light can create matter. <laughs> I wish we could like teleport him from the past and tell him that and see his reaction. Maybe maybe not on a podcast, but maybe maybe on a YouTube video that would be <laughs> pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, that would be very uh, interesting. So thank you for that. Uh, and thank you for our listeners. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.